Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. After a deadly shooting at a party in a downtown St. Louis office building, the city's elected officials are calling for concrete policies to ward off a scourge of crime and gun violence. One idea that's been embraced by State Representative Steve Butts is curtailing juveniles from carrying firearms. On the latest episode of Politically Speaking, Butts discusses why he's optimistic that some gun regulations can pass in Jefferson City, and he also talks about the prospects for his party in the 2024 election cycle. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equal. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. We gotta find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't wanna leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Jefferson City, she covers all things state government and politics for St. Louis Public Radio. Sarah Kellogg. And joining us in our illustrious St. Louis Public Radio studios, we have, for the first time ever... It's the inaugural podcast. Who are you, by the way? I'm Steve Butts, state rep from South St. Louis City. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, Before we dive into issues, and there are many, um, tell us a little bit about your district, first of all, and what are the boundaries and what are the neighborhoods in St. Louis City that it encompasses? Yeah, no, thanks. So the 81st district is the southeast portion of the city and a district area I know very well. So I basically moved in in 1967 or so and have lived within one square mile uh, of this entire area. But the neighborhoods primarily are Crondelet, Holly Hills, The Patch, Boulevard Heights, little teeny weeny bit of Princeton Heights, Bevo, and then Dutchtown on the north side. Now, does it include the YMCA? It does include the YMCA, I, yes. I used to go there all the time until I moved to Richmond Heights, and now I go to the Brentwood YMCA. But the Carondelet Y is far superior. I just want to put that out there. Hey, it, it is, and uh, I need to get there more often. So tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got involved in Missouri politics. I know from interviewing you in 2016, you ran for the House and was, un- was unsuccessful. But ever since then, it's been nothing but electoral success for you. So why did you get involved in this crazy world of Missouri politics. Yeah, thanks. You know, a lot of a lot of people, including uh, my wife, asks me this all the time. So no, the, the answer is when you have lived in a place for a long time and you feel like you know the community very well and you have had a nice run professionally. Uh, we have six kids and the youngest of those was 
you know, grown and in way at college at the time. So just from a personal point of view, there was time to give back to the community. I've long, long been involved. I didn't just get involved in civic and community affairs when I wanted to run for office. That's not the case at all. And I would continue to stay involved, win or lose any elections. But I just knew at the time, um, you know, the state rep position, I think, going back to that's, you know, really almost seven years ago now, was was kind of a sleepy position, right? It didn't get a lot of attention. There were very few votes that came out. And I thought, you know, it's it's just I'm a good person to add another voice. And I had one real goal, and that was to get a lot of additional people involved in the process at the state level. And, and to be honest, I, I think I've done that with uh, really large and many town halls and, and voter turnout. If you look at the numbers from 2014 and 2016, starting in 2016, you'll see thousands more voted in the, these smaller elections that have a lot of uh, input into how we are governed. This is year five for you in the Missouri House. What's changed since you got sworn into office in 2019? Oh, what's changed? Uh, I know this will sound... Uh, a little bit crazy and not what people think. I I would say um, on balance, we work together better now than we did five or or six years ago. Um, Maybe everybody was just, it's part of term limits, right? So I was in that first kind of wave of a really large freshman class because of term limits. And, you know, new relationships had to be formed quickly and in some cases, I think the cream of the crop has has risen a little bit and more quickly than it would in, in the old days. Um, term limits also, of course, negative because, you know, people have to scream and yell and make a name for themselves quickly. Um, but I, I would say, you know, the ability of people that don't make the news very often that are working behind the scenes on a lot of good work in Jefferson City and and locally in the city. You know, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch described you as something of a moderate, perhaps because you are opposed to abortion under some circumstances. I know there's a couple of bills this past session that you voted yes on that other colleagues of yours in the Democratic caucus did not. You know, do you feel like that's a fair characterization of you? I do. I, I I would say I'm I'm proud to bear the the banner of moderate. I, I have an oldest son who's a professor at Cal State Long Beach, and he said, you know, Dad, only only in Jefferson City are you considered a liberal. And you know that some of my colleagues there say that I am. But I I just think if you are moderate, you take the position that says um, no one group gets everything that they want. Everybody has to compromise a little bit when and where they can. And if you don't form coalitions where people can work together, you know, rural, urban, left, right, center, we're not going to get anything done. So let's move on to issues. And one that's especially top of mind comes because there was this shooting at a downtown St. Louis party where one person was killed and 11 people were injured. Many of the victims were minors. And one of the first things that actually popped in my head when I saw this story is that the legislature had been trying to pass a bill that would curtail firearms from getting into the hands of juveniles. But that ran into a lot of Republican opposition. But it also seemed like there was 
actually a decent amount of Republican support for this idea. How realistic is it that this type of proposal could make it through the process in Jefferson City? It did have some support, and I know on it did have some support, and I know on uh, my fellow colleagues Marlin Anderson, the reps, and Donna Berenger, they worked hard on this all last summer. Um, I can just describe it like this. If you were to say where we're at in terms of gun violence, not just in the city of St. Louis, but you have to look at it really in the entire nation, is legislation going to move to dramatically and immediately curtail that violence? I think that's a pipe dream. That is not to say, and with the strongest emphasis I can give it, we have to do everything and anything we can do. And I mean that collectively. So, yes, this latest incident you would think would move the needle. But, you know, Jason and Sarah, I'd, I'd say, and did you not think the shooting at the uh, visual arts school would have moved the needle on a red flag law? Yet it did not. And do you not think that every time you see the story of a three-year-old that gets a hold of a handgun and shoots a nine-year-old, that would change the, the story, but it does not. Um, there are definitely things that we have to do as a so society as a whole, but in Jefferson City in particular, we are strongly pushing this narrative that I think has just huge support, and that is underage minors should not be walking around in public with loaded firearms, period. And the pushback, of course, is from the rural legislators many times and then those Republicans running in primaries because you can't even begin to make a hint that you would curtail any type of gun right. Yeah, so how do you do this in a way that can get Republican support? You know, as you mentioned, it seemed that there was opposition because rural lawmakers don't want juveniles who hunt or target to shoot to become criminals. You know, is there kind of just a scalpel, you know, that you could basically carve out to figure out how to get this across the finish line? There is. You know, I'm I'm a lifelong uh, firearms owner. I started shooting even somewhat competitively when I was 10, 11 years old at the Southside Loughborough YMCA. We had a rifle team, if you can believe that, back in the late 60s, early 70s. Jason's shaking his head. What, at the YMCA? It's true. I, I would just say, here's Here's where we're at. Um, many of my good Republican friends uh, would say the following. Hey, when we were kids, we go out hunting or, if, you know, I want my grandson to go out with his buddies and they're going to go squirrel hunting. And I said, absolutely. So I had a little debate on the floor as a hunter. And I said, you know, it's funny. Uh, your 14-year-old or even your 42-year-old nephew cannot just go deer hunting, cannot go squirrel hunting. You have to attend a hunter safety class. You're a kid, that's a two-day class, part classroom instruction, part in-the-field safety training. So it happens here, like in the Weldon Springs area, happens throughout the state. You don't get that little hunter safety card that allows you to buy a permit to hunt squirrels, rabbits, deer, duck, etc., all of which I do hunt. I also bring up the point when we just talk about the type of weapons that people carry. Um, you know, if you're going to go, I'll just throw out rabbit hunting real quick, not to go too deep in the weeds, but uh, you have to put a plug in your shotgun that limits how many shells that weapon can hold. And that is three in the state of Missouri. So, I mean, if we're going out hunting, which is always the argument, 
I'd say, yeah, we've got rules and regulations. Let's not call them gun control. Let's say that's reasonable regulations. You've got to show me you know how to handle the firearm safely, load it, unload it, what to shoot at, what not to shoot at. At a minimum, a minimum, so I'm kind of pushing this idea that the hunter safety class has to get introduced for underage youth. Do you think it's a realistic possibility that St. Louis would be able to have their own gun laws? Absolutely, I do. I mean, Kansas City does. Um, so, yes, realistically, I do. I know uh, Kara Spencer is getting a lot of good press on this. And, and she's not new to this battle. I know there's this goofy, you know, political thing. If if Alderman Spencer has a win, somehow that's a loss for the mayor. To me, that's, that's crazy. This is all hands on deck, whatever it takes to move the needle. And uh, Kara Spencer's proposal, along with, you remember several years ago, you guys, when um, – she introduced the, you know, you can't bring your guns into the parks because it's kind of like child, a child care facility and at playgrounds. And that that worked. There's an example of, you know, a, a tiny step forward in the right direction. So I'm, I'm going to say yes, if enough people, both at the city level and at the state, get behind it. And I think there is a growing momentum towards it. You're a great segue. So Alderwoman Kara Spencer did introduce legislation that seeks to bar people from openly carrying guns in the city unless they have a concealed and carry permit. And so and we have a clip of that, I believe. Well, I think we keep marching forward. I think the important thing is to engage the community um, on how to unroll this in a way that will do the least amount of harm. But recognizing that doing nothing is just simply not an option. Um, the proliferation of guns in our streets specifically, um, the uh, semi-automatic weapons that we're seeing on a very regular basis throughout many, many neighborhoods in our city, including our downtown area, is horrifying, and it's time we do something about it. What do you think, again, of this of this proposed ordinance and this idea in general? I support the ordinance, and I know they're tweaking some wording, and I haven't read the final, you know, wording, but I'd say I support the ordinance. I have carefully read Kansas City's, and I believe that the aldermen and the Board of Aldermen are trying to model the wording on that. Um, so, no, I support it. I, I, I can't imagine 99% of everyone supporting a step like this. It's not, you know, it's not the final answer. Absolutely not. I like, we have to say, we have to, we didn't get here just overnight. We got here over 30 years. We have to roll this thing back. So um, I'm going to say I'm in support. Uh, some members of the Board of Aldermen have questioned whether that proposal would pr produce more confrontation between police and people carrying guns. I know that Board of Aldermen President Megan Green mentioned that. I think we have a clip of that as well. I think we have to ask ourselves whether this is um, this can actually do what we are wanting it to do. And I think as part of that process, we also have to make sure that um, we're not enacting laws that would um, codify stop and frisk type policies that have also been struck down as unconstitutional. So I think there there's still a lot of work that has to be done. I think we have a shared agreement that we must address gun violence and do everything we can that's within our authority to get guns off the street. But we have to do it in a way that's smart and in a way that's legal and in a way that will be upheld in court because we will be sued over it. When I wrote about this, uh, Representative Justin Sparks, a former police officer, you know, he's out in Wildwood. He said that he felt that this also just creates just confrontations immediately. If you're having someone, you're going to ask if they have a permit. Well, if they don't, what happens next? So what do you think of these concerns that have been brought up about it? OK, I, I, sure. Can can you say that there are going to be issues? I, I Clearly there are. Right. But I'm going to say 
Let, let's go back to the real thing. We're, we're starting with the first unbelievably reasonable goal, and that is eliminating open carry. Kids walking around. You got, you know, you're under 18, you're under 19, whatever. You are just openly walking around public areas, not your own home, you know, not hunting with a permit. You're walking around carrying a firearm. There's, uh, is there going to be confrontations? I mean, clearly there will be. And I, I, that's part of the whole goal we have to get to. When you see a 14 or 15, you guys, you saw the picture of the of the five kids. They want to know who, and I'm like, that's picture's been out like four days now. And I'm like, I'm just saying there's no one in any community that says this is a good idea for five kids to walk around with these kind of weapons um, almost like 25 years ago, they would have been going paintballing with their buddies. You know, now they're carrying this kind of weaponry. Um, it's a terrible, terrible situation, and we are setting it up for failure. So for the police or, you know, a community person, a loved one, an elder from the community, a parent to say, no, I'm taking that from you, and we're going to find due process on what to do after the fact. So let, let's move on to a couple of other things that were discussed at length but did not actually pass. One of them was an effort to try and place a board appointed by the governor to oversee the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. My understanding is you supported that type of proposal. First of all, is that true? It is not? true. I do. Why did you think that that was a good idea? You know, I even spoke on it on the floor, and I would say the biggest reason is there was no one single thing the legislature that could have done to improve the morale for the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department uh, would be then passing that and allowing it to go back to a uh, state-controlled board, which, by the way, includes five people, as you guys know, the mayor and four other city residents. You know, frequently when you hear people say, we tried it in the past, they were, you know, basically they're saying at times there were idiots on this board and uh, people that were incompetent and unqualified and looking for political favors. I'm like, okay, so those were the wrong people to be police commissioners. There were also many people that served throughout the years that were excellent police commissioners. I mean, you, you have to bring up both sides. Um, I would say morale of the police department. You both have followed uh, local and state politics a long time. When was the last time you ever had the POA, Police Officers Association, and the Ethical Society of Police hand in hand? And I, and I find it funny, a little bit ironic, I'll say, that when um, the president of the Ethical Society of Police, Sergeant Donald Walters, would testify in Jefferson City on behalf of the police that this would be a good step in the right direction. Of course, then then his opinion was, you know, rebutted and disqualified somewhat. And the Ethical Society Police is the essentially the separate labor union from the St. Louis Police Officers Association that primarily represents African-American officers. So, so not a labor union, but it is an organization that represents him, and they certainly work together on issues that affect policing, personnel, uh, hiring, promotion, all these things. That's correct. To me, that was an important factor, along with the fact that between the circuit attorney being in just 
a complete crash and burn situation, the rudderless ship of chaos, and the reimagining the management of the police department. Those two things kind of went hand in hand for a lot of people in Jeff City. And it's important that it not, not and I say this as many times as I can, it, it just troubles me to no end when it's generally St. Charles or more outstate people pushing this in the city of St. Louis. It needs to be St. Louis elected officials, both locally and in Jeff City. But I do want to say, you know, one of the people who was not in favor of this was the new chief of the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department, Robert Tracy, saying he only knew local control. That was what he was asking for. And and do you think that one with what eventually happened with the circuit attorney, the momentum of that of kind of like, let's give him a year. Do you feel like that was enough to maybe not push this as much? I do. I do. I agree with that 100 percent, Sarah. So I'm going to slightly tweak your take. So the new chief, who I think is wonderful and I wish nothing but the best for him, he has my and I hope your both and, and everyone's support. When he testified in front of the Senate committee, I went to both those hearings and basically he said he wasn't saying he's strongly against a state commission board. He was saying, I, like you said, I don't know this system. I only know a local control. Um, but give me one year to turn this police department around and I will come back to this committee and give you a report and maybe we'll revisit it at that time. That seemed imminently reasonable to me. And I'm, I'm just a state rep, not on that Senate commission, but I sat 10 feet from the guy when he said it. And I'm like, he'd only, the first time he came, he'd only been there six weeks or so. And the second time only been eight or 10 weeks. And he's certainly entitled to a year or two to, to get the morale and get that police department turned around. So Democrats have made a lot of noise over the years about respecting the will of the people when it comes to ballot initiatives. Um, establishing so-called local control was done by a statewide vote. And the, the Missourians said that they wanted to do this. So how can Democrats be upset when Republicans try and disembowel clean Missouri, but then want to essentially overturn a ballot initiative that established local control? You know, when it comes to, I, I'm going to say this, any any issue of local control, do I believe in local control? Of course I do, until I think it doesn't work. And that is true of just about every single politician in Jeff City. I mean, we say local control. We don't. We mean it most of the time, but not all the time. There are exceptions to the to the rule, and in this case, and this was not my number one issue, but it was an important issue. Um, I would say something. If if you just look at St. Louis City, and and how it's affecting the state, and really our whole national and even worldwide image something had to give. And I know we're going to get to the Kim Gardner story. I think that was the bigger story. So we've talked about this a little bit already, but I want to get really into it. So the other major St. Louis-centric item that failed to pass this legislative session was a measure that would have had a special prosecutor take on a lot of the duties of St. Louis circuit attorney. I know you were also in favor of that one, correct? Uh, until they stripped out the gun part about juveniles. So again, I I, I spoke publicly and on the floor on that. If you, I said, even with a special prosecutor, if you strip out the juveniles, you know, openly carrying guns unaccompanied by their, uh, you know, guardians, it, it's not going to matter very much who is the uh, prosecutor. I, I'd kind of say 
Though the special prosecutor bill, as we voted on it, failed, quote unquote. I, I don't know that you can really say it did fail. I, I think the fact that we have Gabriel Gore as the circuit attorney and not Kim Gardner shows that at least the pressure of that bill played some part in making that happen. So I appreciate you touching a lot of things that I'm going to ask about. Um, I do want another clarifying though, but if I remember correctly, there was a news conference on the Gardner issue, and you said you would heard from constituents, right, that wanted her to resign. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. By okay. yeah, by the yeah. Thousands. So then, would you say that any kind of proposal about this is dead now that Kim Gardner has resigned? Correct. I would say it is 100 percent dead. If you're asking about uh, still the special prosecutor, yes, 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 I'd say it's dead. Yes. yes. And do you feel that AG Attorney General Andrew Bailey was right to pursue a quo warranto against against Gardner? Sure, I do. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even play one on the radio. But I mean, I was it another pressure point uh, on Kim Gardner's resignation, which I think really was everyone's goal. I you just don't want to usurp elections and all that sort of thing. And for the good of herself personally, in my opinion, although I don't I don't know the woman personally, and certainly for the good of the city, we needed her to resign. And it worked out in everybody's best interest, I think, that she did resign. And and you mentioned Gabe Gore. How do you feel like he's doing so far as circuit attorney? I know it's still kind of early. <laughs> no, it, it's early, but holy cow. I mean, this is a serious attorney who comes with serious credentials. Um, I was at the press conference where he was introduced. I was able to speak with his wife for 10, 15 minutes. I met him briefly. Uh, I know I don't know him at all personally, but I know many people who do know him professionally, and by many, you know, a half dozen or so. And I think when you're in any occupation and your colleagues and peers, uh, no matter where they come from, politically, racially, city, county, have nothing but accolades to give your accomplishments, your demeanor. This is a serious attorney that's going to run a serious office. And it's uh, I think he's showing that already just with the hires he's made. I, I, I just think it was tremendous that Mary Pat Carl's coming back and many others. And I think he's going to get that office. He is getting that office um, back to the respect level that that it needs and to help both victims and the, the accused. They both have their right to a fair and speedy trial. Do you think that his honeymoon may end when he has to start making difficult decisions like dismissing cases that have lingered because of the circuit attorney backlog? Of course. All honeymoon periods end. And, um, but I, I don't think that's going to affect his performance at all. And for anybody that thinks there aren't going to be some difficult decisions, both people that are for, you know, a lot of criminal justice reform and those who are really strict law and order. I think there's going to be some unhappy people on both ends of those spectrum. I mean, to think otherwise would just be a, a little bit naive, I would say. But yes, I think the honeymoon period will end, but he will work through that with professionalism and expertise. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Steve Butts. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Steve Butts. He is a Democrat from St. Louis City representing the 81st House District. So we're going to do kind of these quick hits on next year's session and next year's election. 
Um, so what are some things that did not end up passing in 2023 that you think will become major issues in 2024? I'll start with, I think, the sports book betting issue is certainly not dead. And if uh, the the Senate can convince Denny Hoskins to split the two issues of the you know, gas station, quasi, slot machines, and sportsbook betting, I think that that would move. Uh, I do think that's one that got a disproportionate amount of press for an issue that, in my opinion, is, you know, number 11 on the top 10. But it's still, it still needs to be done, and it has a lot of support if we'd split the issue. So it would be good, good for the state in some ways, and it certainly has a lot of support. I, I just if I don't have DraftKings or any of those type apps on my phone, but, you know, it's it's weird if you have to drive just over to Columbia, Illinois to place your bet and go back to work in St. Louis County. So a lot of, you know, sports organizations, I know the, the Cardinals, for example, are frustrated that this isn't moving forward, and there's been basically whisperings that maybe they would try to put it on the ballot for voters to decide. What do you think are the, the success of something like that? I, th- I, I think it would be easily passed on a ballot initiative, easily. And speaking of IP, do you feel that Republicans will still pursue an effort to make constitutional amendments more difficult to pass? One thousand percent. I would think they would consider that their biggest failure. I would say uh, I'm going to say it it was uh, us as Democrats. That was our biggest success was derailing that IP reform. I, I just think that's a terrible idea. And that that pendulum swings both ways. Um, so I, I'm going to say yes to that, that their largest failure was IP reform, and it is coming back with a vengeance, especially in an election year, which will get less done and a lot more infighting. You know, we've spoken on this with some lawmakers, and do you, basically the messaging of that, of how difficult it might be to get voters to vote, to approve of that, to say, hey, all of these things that you voted for will make it harder. You know, what is the messaging for that? So I guess the question is, do you feel like they might abandon that effort since there is not a lot of evidence that any proposal would pass in a statewide vote? I don't think they're going to abandon that effort. I think that's going to be a big Republican primary issue. Well, Speaker Plocker actually said at his press conference that there was a nexus between a scuttling a ballot initiative that would legalize abortion and passing a measure that makes constitutional amendments harder to pass. Uh, your colleague, House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid, said that Speaker Plocker was saying the quiet part loud. Like, do you think there is a nexus? And, and that may be the reason why they're pushing it so hard, because they see this abortion legalization measure coming down the pipeline and they feel like this is a way to stop it. Well, you know, even even as a person that considers themselves a pro-life Democrat, I'd say I if we have an initiative petition process that puts this issue on the ballot and Missouri voters get to vote on it, so be it. That is the will of the people. So I'm going to say I I know that everybody kind of thought uh, Speaker Plocker was was saying the unspoken. But long before that was the issue, I think these guys definitely wanted IP reform. They didn't like Medicaid. They don't like medical marijuana. They don't want increase in uh, minimum wage laws. So I don't see as direct of a nexus connection. We're going to do some rapid fire election stuff now, but we're going to stay on that topic of the abortion legalization ballot measure. As somebody who considers themselves, as you just mentioned, pro-life, what do you think would actually have to be in the initiative in order for it to pass in a statewide vote? 
Well, the first thing that I can tell you is it would have exceptions for rape and incest. That That's just non-negotiable. I mean, even I, you two have followed the whole the whole debate for many, many years, and you know that that that's just non-negotiable and was way beyond the pale. Then it comes down to the number of weeks, and I'm just going to throw out what I see. I, I spent a lot of time this year in Europe. I can tell you what happens in most countries in Europe, and that basically is the first trimester. So if you want to put that somewhere between 12 and 15 weeks, you know, again, I'm, I'm not nailing that down, but I think something like that um, is where most people fall. That would be exceptions for rape and incest, and then legal through first trimester type time frames. If it goes in Missouri, I'm just saying, and I, I think that that would, even that would pass in Missouri. Now, the U.S. Senate race, which uh, seems to have a lively Democratic primary right now, currently uh, Lucas Kuntz is running against St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bell. Is it good for the Democrats to have a primary in a race where they're trying to unseat a Republican incumbent? Boy, who am I to have weigh in on this? But I'm going to say emphatically, no. We need a unified voice. That candidate that can raise money is Lucas Kuntz. That candidate that has already a bit of a national following is Lucas Kuntz. The one that has so many endorsements is Lucas Kuntz. 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 And he, to me, because I've heard him speak a couple times, he's the only one I think uh, that could have that. It is going to be a fight with Hawley. Now, I think the reason why we're paying attention to this, even though Hawley is favored right now, Clearly. is that the winner of this primary could have access to millions upon millions of dollars just because Hawley is such a lightning rod amongst Democrats nationwide. How does the nominee harness that money to help other candidates, including some we're going to talk about in a minute? Yeah. So, uh, boy, I think to have a ticket on the Democratic side that's strong from top to bottom on the statewide offices. Certainly the, the premier race will be the U.S. Senate race, but followed right on the tail of that is the governor. And, and you know, I, I just think in recent times, you'll notice we, we kind of scramble as Democrats. We don't have a real big bench and we, we have a chance to have a really good slate of statewide candidates. And I, we have to get behind the ones that have the best chance, although it's a very small chance in Missouri right now, that's the way it is. You know, speaking of governor, what about that race? Uh, Representative uh, House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid looks like she might be announcing soon. What is her path to victory? So I am a huge fan of Crystal Quaid. She knows that. She and I are, are friends personally, colleagues professionally, and um, she would be an awesome candidate for the Democrats and really would serve as an awesome governor for the state of Missouri. It would just be wonderful. I, I couldn't say it more emphatically. I Her best, and I would say only, I don't want to say only chance, her better chance is if someone like Eigel or Ashcroft were the Republican nominee. If it's Kehoe, I, I think it becomes almost insurmountable. Yeah, so you're talking about Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe, Secretary of State John J. Ashcroft, although his name is John Ashcroft, but he he calls himself Jay, and then uh, Senator Bill Eigel. Who do you think comes out on top in that primary? Because 
I think that there's a lot of people within the Jefferson City bubble that really like Mike Kehoe and really want him to win, and frankly, including a lot of Democrats. But that Ashcroft name recognition is almost 100 percent. And if he blows Mike Kehoe out in southwest Missouri, I'm not sure if there's a path to victory for him. There's a lot of what ifs there. But like, what's your thought about? Yeah, that? I, so I, I can tell you, I I it's not just Jeff City. I mean, Lieutenant Governor Kehoe is is the superior candidate of those three. But that name recognition, especially when you're running statewide, I mean, it's just huge. And I know the Ashcroft name, especially, as you said, in southwest Missouri, it, it's a golden ticket. So I, I got to believe uh, Secretary of State Ashcroft, he, he is the favorite right now. And boy, as a St. Louis guy, it, it would be so great for the St. Louis area, though, if Mike Kehoe were to win that. He's he's never forgotten his roots. I think a lot of people admire that about that guy. Um, I admire anybody that's that's really made it, but then does not forget from whence they came. And I would say that that applies to Mike Kehoe. So our last question for you is actually on the Missouri House of Representatives. So um, I did a story about this, but last election cycle, which was supposed to be considered a red wave, House Democrats picked up seats. And so in a different political environment, what do you think the prospects are for Democrats in the House's upcoming election? Could they winnow enough margins down to end the supermajority? Yeah, I mean, slowly we are going that direction. I mean, thanks in particular, there's many, many people to thank. So I don't I don't want to limit this, but I'm going to say no one has worked harder than our minority leader, Crystal Quaid, to build a bench. And we have targeted races that, you know, obviously I'm not going to tell you here on the on the air, but we have targeted races. Um, I'm I'm one of the fundraisers for the HDCC, and that's our committee that tries to raise money, funnel it to candidates that we know are uh, districts where we can be competitive. That's super important. And we are trying, and I'm certainly involved in this effort, we're trying to have good candidates in almost every race. And that's important. Even if you know you're going to get blown out and in a, I'll just pick on, you know, Washington County or down in Crawford County. It's important to have qualified candidates, and we are actively recruiting such candidates. Now, before you go, it wasn't too long ago that Washington County was represented by a Democrat, Representative Ben Harris yeah, and, I, and, and Belinda Harris. So, and that wasn't ancient history. That was five years ago. No, no, Washington County. Think of Jeffco. I mean, it, it it's not ancient history. So, you know, we're going to dial it back, but uh, targeted races and good candidates, competent candidates. Representative, thank you so much for coming to our show today. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Which, by the way, you're an alum. Uh, I am an alum, class of 1980. Yeah, so we get to actually uh, have some personal uh, uh, connection to that plug. You can find all of our stories at stlpr.org. Representative, how can people follow you either on social media or anywhere else on the World Wide Web? So I'm on Facebook, of course, State Representative Steve Butts, 81st District, and on Twitter, at Butts Steve. Thank you very much. Until next time, so long. If you have-
have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.